everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Bottom-Up Revolution. This is the show where we talk to ordinary people who are making their cities better in a grassroots, bottom-up, organic fashion. Um, I'm a writer at Strong Towns and the new host of this show, and it's just been such a privilege to talk to so many people who are um, finding the next best thing they can do to make their community more resilient, more beautiful. Today, I'm joined by Amy and Cody Frederick. They're the owners of Blockhouse Coffee, a specialty coffee house in a historic part of downtown Richmond, Texas, a small town in the Houston metro area. Even though they are not from Richmond originally, or they're not even from Texas, their cafe is just one way that they are demonstrating radical commitment to their city. They also lead a Strong Towns conversation group called Fortify Richmond and work in the real estate industry as well. Um, Amy co-hosts a podcast called Born in the Bin, and starting in 2020, she began serving on the city's Zoning and Planning Commission, all of that in addition to raising two children. Ultimately, for the Fredericks, all of their efforts boil down to their love of hospitality and building community. We have a lot to cover today. I'm excited to talk with them. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope you'll stay tuned. Amy and Cody, welcome to the show. Hi, Tiffany. Thanks for having us. I'm really excited to talk to you guys. Um, I thought I would kick things off with a fun question because it's going into fall, and we all know what that means, pumpkin spice lattes. So as coffee Uh connoisseurs... I would like for you to give me your official opinion on pumpkin spice lattes. How do y'all feel about this? Well, actually, we just talked about it. Yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. But not in like an existential way, just talked about (laughs) the seasonality of it. He has some ideas. No, I've never had one. What? I don't think I've ever tasted this thing. (laughs) See, this is my dilemma. I have never had one myself. And I can't decide if I have part of my identity attached to this of never having had a pumpkin spice latte and if something in me will forever be changed if I finally give in and order one, even from a local coffee shop. Honestly, like I don't drink that much coffee, but we have a great local cafe here that I love and they just came out with a pumpkin spice latte and it it, it does feel existential for me. So I well, feel like... A... Same. same. We're, we are fellow travelers. I'm, I do this in all <laughs> walks of life. I'm like, you know, put a fly, like, you know, plant flags where they're unnecessary. <laughs> Cody's exact words were um, fall officially starts when the coffee shops release their pumpkin spice syrups. Yeah. So I think that's his position. I don't know if it's quite mine. Yeah, it's not technically true, like, you know, in some atmospheric sense. It's just like coffee shops tell you it's fall now. I think I think there's truth to that. I think my question really, though, is for people who really seem to have a deep respect for coffee. Oh, you ah. want to go there. You want to go there. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, my go-to drink is black coffee um, ground from whole bean by the cup, individually made pour over. So <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not really a pumpkin spice latte fan personally, but I also want to be respectful of our customers who it's a big part of their life. It really, yeah, yeah. So there's like what we would what we drink at home is not necessarily what our customers want to be drinking yeah. at our cafe. So yeah. we we want we're in a spirit of service. We'll give them the syrup if they so want. You guys are you guys are latte inclusive. We are. Yeah, yeah. latte agnostic. Latte. <laughs> yeah, sure. There there is a line though. Like you can't have birthday cake lattes or anything like that. Well, you have I, to... I think there's probably a birthday cake latte out. <laughs> oh no, I know, I know it exists, but I don't know if that's if I, 
I feel like you'll have, we have to draw the line somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know that you'll ever see a birthday cake latte at Blockhouse. However, um, I am a little intrigued of the, all these drinks now that are adding charcoal. Have you seen that? This this charcoal drinks with coffee. I, okay, I, this is I very funny because growing up, my my mom was very homeopathic, like natural medicine, and she like I, I we had a serious episode where I got food poisoning, and she like smuggled charcoal into the hospital to give it to me. So I just I. As a sign of the times, I think it's very interesting that everything that like my homeschooling yes. mom was doing like 25 years ago is now super hip. Right. Um, and now everyone's paying like $7 for a charcoal latte. Absolutely. And I'm like, wait, what? My mom deserves like some retroactive like affirmation. Credit. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I haven't gotten into that. But have y'all seen the blue magic stuff? The blue? What's up with the blue? There's this blue that, powder. Like, or yeah, something like that. No. But added to coffee? No, it's just like a lot. I guess it's like supposed to be sort of like the matcha turmeric side of things, you know, oh. like the turmeric latte, the matcha latte. Mm-hmm. And then there's this new blue thing that's been coming out. But I don't know very much about it. I'm pretty happy with my matcha. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need the, you know, the, it's okay green. You don't need it to change colors. <laughs> um, This was fun. Well, I'm glad we clarified. So let, let's talk about uh, Richmond. So y'all, y'all are not from Texas. You're from Louisiana. And, but you've made Texas your home for, I want to say, nearly two decades now. Am I am I on point there? Approaching. Yeah, we moved here in 2007. Okay. Okay, so I wasn't too far off. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to, to Texas um, and your journey to Richmond and how you came to call Richmond home? You want yeah. to go first, my dear? No, I think you should start and I'll interject. Okay. (laughs) Rules for life. (laughs) We we moved from Louisiana to Houston for work, which is why why most people end up here who aren't from here. A lot of opportunity in all the big Texas cities. And and we were offered an opportunity to help expand a restaurant chain that we were working for at the time uh, to to sort of bring the concept to Fort Bend County, where we where we now live. So that process started in 2006, and it culminated with us moving here and opening that that first location in 2007. So that's how we ended up here at first. We didn't know anybody. No, we moved here not knowing one single soul. I had come, I'd visited Sugarland, which was the first place we landed um, one time before moving here. So we didn't really have a ton of context to what we were, we were going to find. We, our other place that we almost, not almost moved to, but we had an option to move to Lubbock, Texas um, as well. And I don't think the plane landed before Amy was like, I can't do that one. Um, It was a little too far. A little too far from home. It was a little too too West Texas. But they have Buddy Holly there. So that's cool. Like the Buddy Holly Museum is there Um, and a really cool campus college. So anyways, we uh, we ran that restaurant, eventually owned that restaurant uh, for, for quite a few years. So up until 2019, it was a big part of our life. Uh, and just through that, you know, over the years of running a business like a restaurant, you meet literally thousands of people. Mm-hmm. You come to yeah. know people, uh, you build friendships, you build acquaintances, you build a network. Um, and then over that time, we began to, I don't know, get a little bit what would you call that? Like adventurous, like wanting to try new things. We were part of a franchise chain, which mm-hmm. on one hand is great because there's tons of support and uh, helping you to grow and stabilize. But then you also do get bound and mm-hmm. following the system. So we found ourselves wanting some projects to where we could we could uh, exercise our creative energies in our own way. And that's sort of where the beginnings of ideas about 
cafes came from and real estate things and stuff like that. Yeah. And over the years of um, operating, owning and operating the the restaurant in Sugarland, we, we were um, fortunate enough to, to get away over uh, parts of our summers. And we started traveling quite extensively out West and we already liked coffee. Um, we would kind of route our road trips where the great specialty coffee shops were so we could visit them and our our brains are kind of wired towards noticing interiors and design and layouts and how customers interact with spaces and we would go to these cafes on the west coast and um just wish that we had places like that back home and so we got to talking about well, we're already in hospitality. We're already in the restaurant industry. How far-fetched would it be if we were to open a cafe uh, like one of these that we see when we travel, but we don't have back home? And um, yeah, the, the, and, that, so, and that really, like, we started flushing that out. I mean, I think the conversation kind of, like, <laughs> it, it took place over a span of years. Right. Yeah, this was from, I mean, from San Diego to Seattle. You know, they, there's um, all the way up the West Coast in, in certain pockets of some of those cities, we came across, uh, it's a different version. We grew up near New Orleans. So mm -hmm. New Orleans in its own way being for, for an American city, it's a pretty old city. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's known for a certain form of a cafe culture. You know, mm -hmm. Louisiana people call it visiting, right? So you just visit and you might drink coffee, you might have a cocktail. And it means spending time pretty mm -hmm. much telling the same stories over and over again with people that you know. Um, but that socializing element, we we found a different version of that on the West Coast, mm. a little bit higher design, maybe around fancier hipster coffee, but saw the sort of magnetic effect it had on the neighborhoods these places mm -hmm. were in and kind of got a little jealous. Yeah. So we yeah. would come home from our trips and in Sugarland, there were no, you know, I think the, I think the phrase third, third place or third. Yeah. Place. Which Starbucks kind of coined. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, it's really in the vernacular now. So we would come back and be like, well, where are our third places in Sugarland? And we didn't have them. Yeah. Um, I would find myself hanging out at Whole Foods with my daughter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because it was the only kind of space to, to, we could, we could grab, you know, lunch and hang out, but mm -hmm. it was, it didn't satisfy that, mm -hmm. that desire, that need for, for community gathering, socializing, people watching, you know. Like where you bump into people without having planned it. Yeah. So let's keep the story going then. So tell us, tell us more about how the coffee shop got going. I know you all opened in 2017, right? Correct. We did. So I would say in about 2014, those conversations started happening. We started talking about um, coffee and, and, and the idea of, of, you know, bringing um, specialty coffee to the suburbs, because um, at the time, Houston as great and as uh, robust and, and diverse of a city it is, it's it was still quite a drive from Just to go get a good cup of coffee. To go get a good cup of coffee, yeah. Back then. From Sugarland, and um, we we just kept saying, man, we really wish someone would open a specialty coffee shop in Sugarland. Somebody else. <laughs> and uh, it kept not happening. It kept not happening. <laughs> finally, we were like, you know what? We really we should do this. And so I think in about 2015, 2016, I reached out to a graphic designer and kind of started toying around with um you know concepts and we started looking for real estate and um we looked at some places in Sugarland and Cody is you know at about that same time talking about real estate um he was wanting to invest 
mm-hmm. kind of getting the itch to to purchase like I don't know if you call it speculative real estate, but just something to kind of some land or um, a property to, yeah. to do something is, with. And, and this was this is where Richmond comes into the picture. You know, Richmond yeah. Richmond's next door to Sugarland. They're adjacent towns. Sugarland is a very very affluent sort of nice master plan suburb. Um, so there's not a lot of room for creativity with, if you own mm-hmm. a piece of property there, there's a, a lot of zoning rules around what your buildings can look like. And um, Richmond had some character to it, like a diamond that needed polishing. And I had found online a piece of land for sale in the historic district. And in my mind, I thought, well, maybe we build an office for our team there because we had a small back office team supporting our restaurant. And that's sort of what got me in the neighborhood for the first time looking at property um, was, yeah, we didn't, we were, we were thinking about how do we invest and in do property, but we didn't really have, I didn't have a concise plan yet. It, so those, those two concepts were kind of like happening in tandem. So we were trying to look for real estate in Sugarland to open a coffee shop. And Cody was also looking for real estate to purchase as an investment. And we weren't intending for those two things to come together but they did and and Richmond is where it happened. So um, the property he was looking at happened to have a uh, commercial empty vacant commercial building um, adjacent to it that was um, not being utilized by the owner and uh, but it also wasn't for sale. And our commercial broker mentioned to Cody, well, perhaps you'd like to buy that as well. I know the owner. And, it's, a small, it's a small town. Yeah. So yeah, within a, I mean, we were we were standing in this. It was a quarter acre, empty lot, and there was a broken for sale sign on the corner. Like I'd been up there a long time, and and part of the sign had broken off, and the uh, the property was in a family trust um, where multiple descendants were bickering over not a lot of money and in, in mm-hmm. terms of selling it. And my broker and I are standing on the lot, and he calls the the representative. The I guess it was the executor or the trustee. Um, and I was expecting to begin negotiating and the guy just took our offer over the phone right there, like verbally. Wow. Um, and I was like, oh crap. Okay. So now we need to get a plan together. And then the broker says, well, I know who owns this building next door too. Do you want to call them? <laughs> uh, like a good broker should. And that building had had been gutted and was vacant by the, the, the owners at the time. They were in the midst of a project and then they had stopped working on it. So they were, the building had become a bit of a thorn in their side and they hadn't listed it for sale. Um, so he called them and um, one of the owners, the wife of the owner says, we'll sell it. Sure. At this price, no negotiating. We made a verbal agreement on the phone there too. So I had a piece of land with no plan. And then we had a build, an empty building with no wiring or plumbing in it with no plan all in the span of about an this- hour. This is like the epitome of jumping off the deep end. It's, yeah. It's, it's so ready, many ways. Yeah. Ready, fire, aim, I always say. Now, at this time, y'all didn't live in Richmond yet, right? No. Right. We, we were, did not. We're living in an adjacent town about, I don't know, 40, 40 minutes away or so, which in Texas is around the corner. <laughs> yeah. So, so this really escalated like you're at what I understand to be kind of a move towards Richmond and, and just like a whole new level of commitment to the city. Yeah, it, well, I mean, it was an introduction to the city, really, because we Richmond was not on our radar at all. Um, you know, I had maybe come over. So so the main drag through the town, um, right when you cross a, a big, a big major river, you're in the historic district. And, and I had maybe crossed that bridge once 
it's the county seat. So you, you come down here to get your driver's license if you've moved mm-hmm. to the area or um, a marriage license. So that, like the courthouse is down mm-hmm. here. And those, so so most people who don't live here, that's that's going to be the reason they'll end up in, in downtown Richmond is some kind of county business of some kind. Yeah. So I, I want I want to talk more about the city, but before I do that, tell us more about your coffee shop. Like what okay. what what makes your coffee shop special? Obviously, hopefully, people listening to this will come check out. Yeah, your cafe. But I know there's a story behind the name. Uh, but what are, what are y'all hoping to accomplish through this business? Okay, so the coffee shop. I mean, if people listening to this, my, this might resonate with them. So we had an idea for a coffee shop, a version 1.0. That mm-hmm. version is still sketches on a pdf somewhere it never came into existence like the taj mahal version of blockhouse didn't we couldn't achieve liftoff with version one too expensive Mm -hmm. Um, we worked with an architect they were very creative and they um they thought money was no object even though you kept saying money is an object money is an object um so that first it was a failure to launch on version one and we had built a small office space in a thousand square feet in this building the blockhouse was going to be further down in the same building. We ended up building an office. And then how long was it? A Not year? A year. Blockhouse is a converted office. It's an office that we, we meaning Amy mostly, uh, was effectively the general contractor. No, I was. And ad- adapted an office <laughs> space into a coffee shop. So Blockhouse as it is now is not going to win any design awards um, because if you look carefully, you see that used to be somebody's office, but now it's the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this this now is a, a it was a conference room, but now it's where the kids play area is. So Blockhouse is a 1000 square foot coffee shop. Um, it does have a backyard. Um, what, what sets it apart, I think, is in a thousand square feet, how many connections happen there how many friendships have been started there, how many business deals have been done there, um, and how it's been for us kind of being not from the area. It's been an incredible accelerant for us becoming connected to people down here, opportunities down here. And then you get this cool vantage point where we see everybody basically that comes in, we meet all of them and we get to see what dots need connecting in a way that almost no one else can because everyone comes and talks to us <laughs> about what's going on. Um, and uh, Amy's really good at this. Amy's effectively like recruiter extraordinaire. You know, when she sees something needs to happen, she's going to pull two people together that otherwise wouldn't have met. But because she's at the, ca- the cafe, we get this cool perspective where we get to say, you've got to meet this person. Um, and I like a get- connector. Connector. Very much, yes. Amy, yeah. I actually want to want to ask you about this. Um, I'm just curious. So I I grew up moving a lot. I've been very transient, lived in lots of places. So I know you are not from Richmond, but you all have jumped in in so many meaningful ways, just in all these different projects. So opening this coffee shop, serving on the planning and zoning commission, um, starting the Strong Towns chapter. How do you, I'm just curious, like what advice you would give to other transplants who are moving to new cities and who want to be engaged, but maybe they feel a little bit afraid, like I don't have a right to because I'm not from here or what if I bring an idea that someone says is like, you know, what if I don't know enough to really suggest the right ideas or do the right projects and I end up like offending people or yeah. so I'm just curious, like how do what advice do you have about becoming meaning, meaningfully engaged as someone who's not from that particular city? Yeah, I think it's actually um, an even more difficult challenge here. Um, now, my my perspective 
is limited to here. But what I what I notice, I I can juxtapose um, owning and operating a business in Sugarland versus owning and operating a business in Richmond. Um, Sugarland was more difficult to do those things that you just mentioned. Um, how, like, how do you meet? How do you interject ideas? How do you um, make connections? It's harder to do that in places without those third spaces. So I would, my my number one advice would be to, to anyone moving or, or living in a place that's new to you, um, find your area's gathering spots. Um, don't be afraid to ask your cashier at your favorite grocery store or your favorite barista at, you know, even Starbucks, you know, um, because I know there's a Starbucks in in your town. Um, They're everywhere now. So talk to the people who are coming in contact with lots of other people and ask them questions. You know, talk to your waiter at your favorite restaurant. Talk, you know, find out who owns that restaurant. Find out who owns your favorite local coffee shop, or if you have a local grocer, that's awesome. Ask them questions. Um, and they will start to enter, they will ask you questions and learn about you. And then, and then be people like Cody and I, they are your connectors. Um, your local business owners in your area are your connectors. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, the other things I would say is, you know, get on a bicycle, get out of your car, take a walk, Mm -hmm. see -hmm. your city outside of a car, talk to your neighbors. Um, Don't be afraid to talk to strangers um, and just have conversations. Yeah. I think to to add on that, there's an element of, we we use the term uh, go first. Um, It's part of hospitality, you know, sort of like an ethos where even if you're an introvert, um, if you are prepared to help someone else or to be of service, um, or even if it's just being the first one to smile, you know, in a, in a random kind of interaction in a, in the line at the grocery store, um, it tends to pay off. Like you, you're not showing up in this new town trying to change everything to mm-hmm. fit your personal preferences. You're there to see how you might be able to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, I think starting there, most places have a lot of open positions for people who want to genuinely want to be of service. Um, there's not a lot of competition for, for those seats. So um, it, people were more used to people asking for something or wanting something or demanding something or, or maybe complaining about something they don't like. But I think if you start with, um, how can I help? It's typically a good spot to begin with because then maybe it takes some of the edge off of feeling like I haven't built up the trust yet to yeah. demand things or ask for things. I want to build off of that. Can you all talk to me a little bit about being professionals in the hospitality industry um, and how that shapes your perspective on cities and what it means to be part of part of a community? I've worked in the hospitality industry, but for me, it was more or less a gig, you know, it's like working restaurants in college or in between jobs, whatever. So I feel like it's always special when you meet people who work in the hospitality industry, but for them, it's like truly almost like a calling, not just like not just a career or job. And I get that vibe from you guys. Um, So yeah, what's your ethos of hospitality? What does it mean to be hospitable? And then, and I'm sure that shapes your business, but also how does that shape kind of this rule of life y'all have, you seem to have created for like really being engaged and involved in your community. Yeah, I think we're really fortunate um, to have worked for the company that 
that brought us to Sugarland. Um, it was a at the time that I joined, and especially the time Cody joined, it was it was more or less a startup. But it was always, at least when I when I got there, um, focused on the customer experience. Uh, there was a really intense um, focus on always having what we called eyes of the customer. So that was drilled into, and, and I, I was, I was actually working in um, the office setting, the, the corporate setting um, as kind of an errand runner. That's how I got my start at the company. And even being there, it, we were always supposed to have this mindset of what it was like to work in, in our restaurants. Um, and so when we came to Sugarland to um, build the brand and uh, really seed the area with um this new brand that was coming to to sugarland um we had to sell it we had to get people to be fans rabid uh rabid fans of what of what we were offering and the best way to do that is to make the customer experience as top-notch as airtight buttoned up as possible and um and we were really proud of what what we were doing and so really starting to notice um oh well uh you know somebody just got up from that table i need to clean it right away so someone else can sit down and and not have to come to the counter and ask someone to clean a table or uh making sure that the toilet paper is always stocked in the bathroom or the napkins are always there or everything's functioning properly or you know i mean our people were cleaning windows like every 10 minutes on the 10 minute mark you know it was it was very formative for me to be put in that position like this was my place and I needed to make sure it was as pristine as possible um and in turn that provides a a very welcoming and um uh memorable experience to the customer because we were I don't know if we mentioned but it was a quick service it's quick service restaurant we had a drive-through um and that's not something you typically find in um in drive-through establishments uh the attention to detail the the, you know, being attentive to every customer. Um, people weren't used to that in, in Sugarland. Um, so it was a surprise. And I, and I found people were delighted. Yeah. So, um, I, it, there was a great feedback loop there. Uh, a very nice, like I did hard work and my crew did hard work and people noticed and thanked me for it. So it makes you want to keep doing it. Right. Um, and I met people because I was also part of our like community outreach, our our marketing, you know, I, I was our marketing team. Um, so if I'm out there promoting what we're doing and people aren't coming in and finding a awesome experience, you know, that, that I'll be embarrassed, you know. So and so you you know, add- well, I will a slight pivot. Yeah. This, this all does probably go back to our upbringing in South Louisiana. Um, that that culture is very much informed by our French Acadian ancestry. There's a smattering of Sicilian, Southern Italian, like a, there's like a Mediterranean kind of sub culture that runs through that area um, that that really elevates hospitality as something to be proud of. So if you'd imagine, you know, your 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 mom's throwing a dinner party and all their friends are coming over and everyone's scrambling. So the house looks right. Uh, the house doesn't look right every other day, but the house is going to look just right for when that dinner party happens. And and there's this 
almost instinctive urge to want to cater and make sure your guests feel comfortable. Like she's mentioning stocking toilet paper in the bathroom at the restaurant. Yeah. You see someone approaching the door and you run to it so you can open it first for them. Um, so so or, I think that all, it all kind of ties together. That's how you grow a business, of course. I mean, it's like, but, but in your community, if you're hospitable, this is on a very real level that that's a, it's a sign. It's a, it's a type of service, a type of offering um, of your attention and your conscientious to other people. Mm-hmm. So there's something kind of powerful uh, at, the, at the subconscious level that happens when when somebody observes that in real time, because uh, it shows that they're thinking about someone. They're thinking about your perspective a lot. And there's some, it's, it's magnetic for people, I believe. And what better feeling than to have an experience where it's just obvious that someone thought about you even yeah. though they may be, de- even someone noticing that you dropped your napkin and bringing you a new one, yes. right? Or someone, I don't know. Those are just those little gestures that go so far. And it sometimes it just makes me think like, how would cities look and feel? Like, how would we run our cities and communities if we started with hospitality, right? If we started with that uh, customer centric mindset of like, how can we make people spending time in our city the most memorable experience ever and anticipate their needs and anticipate uh, ways that we can make their life more delightful. Um, Amy, I think you're getting to this with the strong towns group to some degree. Can you make that connection for me? Just kind of how you see this thread of people consciousness and and thoughtfulness shaping what you're, what y'all are advocating for with uh, Fortify Richmond. Yeah, um, I'll do my best. Cody might have to. Cody might have to rein me back in. But <laughs> I think it. I think it really starts with. Um, you know, I, I, I'll keep talking about hospitality because I did want to make the connection of like the restaurant in Sugarland, and then and then being so confident that we had we had the right mindset. We knew we knew we knew how to make people feel great inside of a restaurant. Yes, we needed to learn the coffee industry a little bit, and we needed to, you know, pivot from the uh, the offerings that we had at our other restaurant. But we had we had no fear that we would be able to pro- provide or create um, a place where people feel welcome because we had such such experience and and a, and a, you know many years of doing that at at the other restaurant. A lot of people will ask us like, "How did you get into this?" And like, "Oh, well, we." we had a restaurant before, like we kind of, I hate to say we knew what we were doing, but serving people, but if it's true, (laughs) yeah, serving people did not, was not a new thing to us. Mm -hmm. That part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so bringing that back to, to Richmond and the coffee shop and how to connect it back to the work, uh, that we're doing with, um, strong towns. Um, you know, I come in contact, uh, with so many of our customers and I, and I'm able, thankfully the way our business is structured, um, I'm able to talk to them. I have time to meet them. I learn their names. I learn their kids' names. I see them come in with their mother-in-law from out of town who, you know, is visiting and they have to take them to Blockhouse. And, and I, I learn like they love Richmond, not just because of Blockhouse, but for like, reasons that they even can't quite articulate. And so having those conversations over and over and hearing people like, I don't know what it is about this place. I just like it. Or it's different than Sugarland. There's something about it. And they can't put their finger on it. And I like in my mind, I'm thinking like, I know why you like it. <laughs> uh, it's because it's human scaled. It's because, you know, you can walk 
shaded streets, uh, shaded by, you know, hundred year old plus oak trees. You can, you can park on um, the street behind the coffee shop and walk into the coffee shop and not, you know, be a complete sweat mess by the time you get <laughs> to the door. Um, you know, it's beautiful. You look out our back windows and you see, you know, um, oak tree coverage, you know, shading the backyard. We have a playground. It's a place to, you know, hang, you can hang out literally for hours in our spot and feel, you know, like you're right at home. Like, not like anyone's eyeing you. Like, are you about, you know, you need to leave. You've been here too long. We're, that's so unique to where we live in the greater Houston Metro. I don't know of very many places outside of old downtown Richmond that can really claim that uh, or take advantage of that kind of an asset. And because I see it, I live it, we live here now. Um, I'm I'm sure we'll cover that later, but um, we operate a business, we live here, we volunteer at the city. Um, I see all these things. I can't not see them. And I can't imagine I can't not imagine how much better it could be um and 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 pulling the thread of the hospitality it's like people deserve to know when they're in Richmond that they're here and the the place making piece is really missing um we could do such a better job um at our city and that that is a, a service that we can do for others is to let them know where they are, let them know all the things they can do here, all the things that are available to them that are that are free um, and aren't available in other places. Um, and, and everyone's welcome, you know, everyone's welcome to come and walk our streets. Everyone's welcome to come and, you know, peruse our shops. Um, but when you enter the town, you don't really know you're here until you come to a place like like Blockhouse or there there are other businesses in town that do a great job of creating a sense of place. But as a whole, that's a piece that's really missing. And that's really what has driven me to want to start um, a citizen group because the leadership doesn't seem to um, see that as a need or even realize it as a as a, a as having the potential to be um, explored. Um, But I know that our citizens do because I talk to them. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm having the conversations um, with hundreds of people and, and they, they love, like I said, they already love Richmond, but they can't always put their finger on why. And I want to change that. I want them to be able to say why, because we do, we've done such an amazing job of placemaking. They can name or point to anything around town and be like, "Well, that that's why I love it because we have that or that or that." And um, I guess I I want to synthesize all of our assets and make them really obvious. And there's the, the 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 one of the core challenges is people who are from somewhere, you know, will will tend to see things a certain way based on their experience. Um, and then maybe to some degree, their ability to envision what's possible will be limited based on what they've come into contact with in their life. And we live in a, in a region that's growing rapidly. So there are a lot of people um, moving here from other places, other states, other countries, other continents, um, and are coming here 
from places that have these things that Amy's talking about, right? And you you show up and you to them it's obvious, like we're a few steps away from really unpacking a ton of potential here. So translating all of that enthusiasm and desire to see whatever the next version of Richmond might be, translating that so that it doesn't come across as being a threat to people who did grow up here, um, who who are from here, is part of our um part of the puzzle that we want to help solve as well. Because it yeah. isn't like we want to take over your town. That's not that's not what's going on. Um but it is that there's there's something really unique here and we will need new ideas and new energy to explore. Um, how could this place look in the future in, in a way okay. that we could be proud of? And I suspect the coffee shop plays a big role in that and bringing people together and creating a space um, where people can cross, well, can build bridges between. Yeah, I, yeah. I was thinking earlier when we were talking about the third space aspect, you know, our city doesn't have a town square. It doesn't have a, um, like a lot of, like some towns will have like a promenade or um, maybe a, a carved out block in their downtown area um, for gathering or holding um, events. We do have a beautiful park, but it's kind of set off to the side on the edge of the downtown and it's not really in the center or a place that you would naturally kind of um, bump into people. You kind of have to purposefully go to the park. Um, and I love it. It's beautiful. It's called Wessendorf Park. Um, and it's a great gathering space, but it's not in like the, what am I, what, like well, I'd the, say if, if, if you don't plan to go there, you're not going there. Yeah, One of those so, kind of parks. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have a square where people are passing each other or um, gathering and sitting a while. And, um, and, and I've really, I, I mean, not super intentionally. I, I didn't, I don't think we realized this would happen, but our place blockhouse has become the magnet and our backyard has organically become like the gathering spot of Richmond um it's where you bump into people in an unplanned way you you know uh serendipitous interactions like yeah and i would i would love i mean looking to the future i would love for that gathering place not to be at a on on private property at a at a private place of business but i, I would rather it be in the in the public square um but we're a little far from having that kind of thing so we'll we'll gladly like hold be the placeholder um but i think yeah. there's something so important about what y'all are saying though that might go might fly under the radar because i remember when i first moved from new york city to waco which i'm sorry listeners if i say this in every episode but it's it's just such a it's still such a big event in my life um but um one thing that was so hard was how invisible people were unless you found the third space it's like i remember where i worked at our farmers market for about a year and that was kind of the first time i could kind of get a feel for who waco is or i remember going to bars sometimes and just being shocked at like the people who were there and i was like where do all these people come from because i never get to see them unless it's like a friday night and we've all decided to go to the same bar so you know every city has these little pockets of population of culture of like demographic variety and diversity but when you're in a car and you're just shuttling from one stroke to the next and one you know one target to the next HEB to the next gas station you don't have that human visibility and it makes it really hard to kind of like 
put your finger on what is, who is my city and all these different groups, right? So working at the farmer's market was really great. Help me bridge some of those gaps, you know, kind of seeing who was coming out to different bars and stuff helped me kind of feel like, oh, okay, this is who Waco is, right? Or spending time at coffee shops, I could kind of get fill in that picture a little bit more. But that's just such a powerful role of third places is to make your city literally visible yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a human yeah. way, to make it possible to see other people's faces, which yeah. is just so important. I don't know how to emphasize how important that is for feeling like you're in an actual place, right? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, yes. it's crazy to to need to say it. <laughs> it's like to, to, to say it, I mean, everybody's going to nod their head in agreement, obviously, right? Like a, a good life is filled with people and relationships. Um, so, and, and, and very often, it, if you're in a place that's shaped a certain way, I mean, some people like it, some people don't like it, some people just don't know. Um, but, it you know, to... The, the way to develop deep relationships is you have to do things with people. Like, we'll have you to have to... see them. Can we at least see them? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> sure. Right, right. Like... <laughs> so I think that's a really great place to um, mention that all these things that we're claiming we've been able to accomplish at Blockhouse wouldn't be possible in another adjacent town it, it wouldn't be possible in sugarland it wouldn't be possible in another another town nearby is missouri city because of their development patterns mm -hmm. we are able to do what we're doing in richmond because of the development pattern in richmond um so yes we've been intentional about creating a third space but it's been facilitated by the natural existing development pattern here. And that's why that like, I could just talk for an hour straight on the potential, our, our 75 to 80 block street grid, a historic street grid down here has, and the um, like the untapped, unutilized um, assets that, that we have that, that are just like, I get so frustrated talking about it because I, I see so like what, what this place could be. And, and Blockhouse is a very, very tiny example of what the rest of the city and how it could function. Um, but we seem to be one of the only places, businesses that, that see it and are taking advantage of it. And, and by business, I mean, not just Blockhouse. So we have other tenants in our building as well. And I think those tenants get it because they they were attracted to come be a part of our building because of because of what we're doing. And they are like-minded and we're, we're aligned on, on the, the potential of, of the city. But, um, but yeah, it wouldn't be possible without the existing street grid development pattern that's here. Which was laid out in the 1830s. So it's, uh, as far as Texas goes, Richmond's one of the oldest settlements in the state. So we have one of these older, I don't know, e each city blocks about an acre. Um, and uh, it's been chopped up a bit, you know, through the 20th century with the highway and things like that. And the like streets that. have been widened and, yeah, and but, things like that. But, but we But have, the bones are here. Yeah. The bones are here to facilitate a lot of human interaction. And the surrounding radia radius um, is is full of housing, you know, older housing stock. People could, people could, if they chose to get on their bicycles and ride to the downtown 
uh, commercial district where we're located, um, it's possible. And that really doesn't exist in um, many, many other places in and around Houston. Um, so I get really excited about the potential, but, um, you know, <laughs> it's a double edged sword. Right? It goes between uh, wild, uh, radical excitement and um, frustration and worry that nothing will ever get done. I can totally relate to that. I totally understand how that feels. Amy, I'm curious, what has your experience been serving on the zoning and planning committee or commission, I believe it's called? Um, how has that experience kind of shaped your view of what's possible in Richmond or just kind of for people like me who are not involved in the, who kind of understand like the frustration, wanting to build a place that people feel welcomed, served, thought of, right? But also being aware like the policies that would need to happen and the type of political conversations and just mindset shift that would need to happen to 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 facilitate that. I think you're one thing that's um special about what you're doing is that you've gotten experience on that side of things as well. What has that taught you about how to think about um cities and like their where like how to wrestle with where they are versus where they could be? Again, back to the volatility of like hope and frustration. Um because I've been learning over the years of how instrumental and um you know how that there's a direct link between what's written in a city's code and what happens in 3d real life like so words on a page translate into what you see in 3d um i think one one caveat to to remember about richmond and, and something that's really interesting um especially to like really watch it play out is is our unified development code was only adopted in 2014 or 2015 so wow. prior to that we had no zoning um so when you come into the city you see a lot of many many most properties actually are grandfathered in and don't follow the udc um but any new development has to follow the udc so i think the most um i think the most pertinent or, or I guess, top of mind realization that I've come to uh, in my time on planning and zoning is, is really understanding how this new development code, if the words on the page were translated, um, like if we had, you know, a dozen or 20 developers come into the town and want to develop our old historic district, according to the words on the page written in the development code, it would fundamentally change our historic area. Um, not, not for the better. Not for the better. It, it, it pushes it in a direction of a suburban development pattern, and it doesn't recognize that we need redevelopment and adaptive reuse developers um, in this particular part of town, the historic in our zoning, they're called specific names, but we'll just say downtown to 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 put it simply. In the downtown area, um, if the code were, you know, allowed to, you know, if, if developers, if, if twenty of them came in and started developing all over the downtown, it would it it would not look the same. And so, you know, thinking about man, am I a new individual coming in here from out of town, from out of state, trying to change things. And I think I'm doing the opposite, actually. I think I'm recognizing the assets we have here mm -hmm. and and saying, whoa, hold up. If we allow this new code to be developed the way it's written, that is what will change our town. Mm -hmm. I am really on the side of preservation and enhancement 
um, really utilizing the assets as they are, redeveloping them, you know, adaptively reusing what's here, um, not shifting it from historic street grid to suburban development mm-hmm. patterns, you know, um, that's that's really been the most fundamental, I think, shift for me, uh, or not shift, but just like learning experience. I'm find a little bit of a fa- uh, tidbit would be this this uh, the code was adopted 2014 ish and hard for years past before any real material uh, project tr- uh, attempted to happen. So the the code wasn't iterating itself and learning from people coming in wanting to do projects for, I couldn't say how many years exactly. But. Yeah, because the surrounding area the, in the in the ETJ and the extra territorial jurisdiction of Richmond is growing so fast. People are really focused out there. Like where the mm-hmm. green fields are. That's where almost all the action is. So the no. other part of town doesn't get as much attention from investors and developers. Mm-hmm. So the code for down here hadn't really been interacted with. It was sort of a consultant-led, nothing against consultants, but it was kind of an off-the-shelf sort of mm-hmm. code. Um, but it wasn't being tested for years. So mm-hmm. now that the, a lot of the land around us has, has been built out, more attention is going to come towards these older parts of town and the code as it is now. I think Amy's getting to it. We run the risk of the code undoing the best parts of our older part of town yeah. instead of producing something better. Yeah, and not recognizing, um, I mean, I'll just give you one example. So in, in the district that, that I'm talking about, there's a, um, and this might be too technical. I don't know if you want to edit this out at all, but um, (laughs) so our minimum lot size to develop for residential is 6,000 square feet, but there are many, many parts of town um, within the historic areas um, where the uh, average lot size is three to 3,500 square feet. So, you know, it, it, that's just a salient example of what do those homeowners and those property owners do with their 3,000 to 3,500 square feet if in order to build a home, if they wanted to remove the structure that's there because it's too old or or perhaps like add on to it, they can't because the minimum lot size is 6,000 square feet. So these are the types of things that I've realized serving on the commission um, and trying to bring to the attention of of city leadership and staff, um, and and I've made some progress. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. There's been more conversations around these things, um, and an appetite for hearing them out. It's just that addressing them in a concrete way is slow. So it's, it almost sounds like a big part of your work is challenging a sort of mindset. It's really helpful, Cody, to hear you explain how so much of the uh, development and investment attention is going to the outer um, outer parts of the city. And now as that energy gets moved closer to the downtown, there's not really a sense of, okay, hold up. Maybe this is a different context with a different history, with different bones. Maybe we need to think a little bit differently about how we develop this part of the city versus how we develop the green fields. So Amy, it sounds like a big part of, or um, I'm sure y'all work together in a lot of things, you know, behind the scenes, but it sounds like a big part of it is kind of challenging the mindset and shifting from um, this mindset of like, how do we make it as easy as possible for anyone to develop and invest here versus how do we build on what we have and preserve what we have and maximize what we have? Is that, am I getting to something there? Because it almost sounds like you're saying like, with this downtown, with this historic area, how do we 
How do we adapt it? How do we repurpose it? How do we work with what's here to make it something even more beautiful and valuable for future generations? And it sounds like that's just a little bit different from the kind of mindset and questions that you're asking when you're trying to develop green space or green, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, at least where we are, I think this is true in pretty much all parts of the US, right? So like the the bigger the developer, the more resources they have, which means they're more sophisticated, right? So right. Um, they can they can handle complex deals. They can, I mean, in Texas, I'm, I'm sure other states are similar as well. In these in these ETJs, as we call them, they're basically unincorporated areas, right? So you're just out of the city limits. Um, the developers basically are acting; they're quasi governmental. I mean, their their sophistication in terms of infrastructure going in and stuff like this. They they City halls, the poor plan departments at a small city hall, they're very, very happy about this because it's the developers can simplify the complex for them. Yeah. So if you're if you're a one city planner and some giant developer developer comes in, they really are making your life easy, right? It's one relationship with one person. It's very efficient. And you get a lot of property value and potentially economic development going on there. Well, if you pivot away from that and you're at a small city hall and you're kind of under-resourced and you're understaffed a little bit, um, to think about the complexity of an older neighborhood, it's it's nothing is efficient. Everything is going to be inefficient and granular. So I could understand, you know, the there are incentives to go towards scale and efficiency. Um, it's, it's kind of, a, I understand that. The other side of it is when you look at not, they're not fads, they are macro trends. When you look at how our country is changing demographically, and this is happening everywhere, um, you know, people are living longer, people want smaller places to live as they age. Young people have struggles with um, buying their first home, affordability issues, um, households are smaller than they've ever been. Um, and the places who kind of sort of have a plan for it, um, there aren't enough of them and they are crazy expensive to live in. <laughs> Um, so like we, we, we've got this spot where many, many parts of the country, the places that are designed well have become like playgrounds for rich people. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but it's, it's because they just function well. Like we go on vacation to those places. It's kind of funny. And then we come back home and say, you can't do that here. That's only for Disney world or that's only for, um, for the seaside Florida, for the beach town that I went on vacation to. So I think there's just this massive, I mean, multi, multi, multi-billion dollar opportunity for the towns that get it right in the U.S. Where, yes, you were you were going to make a bunch of money, um, but the number of people's lives you could impact in a positive way, it's a, it's it can get a bit hyperbolic, but it's it's one of the bigger projects for. I mean, I'm 41 years old, so I'm, I'm not like too old yet, but um, the next 20, 30 years, this is a major project that's going to need a ton of people and ideas to work on. And it's just an optimistic thing, by the way. Um, it's inefficient, but it's very exciting because I think there's a there's an opportunity for a lot of optimism in the people who start to work on this stuff. Um, well, it, it sounds like it's an opportunity for courage too, um, to be courageous enough to say, you know what, we're, we're going to do things differently other than this efficiency focused, you know, uh, model of development and say, you know, let's think differently. Let's think about hospitality. Let's think about the end user and what kind of memories we want them to make, what kind of pattern of life we want them to live. Let's think about what we can pass down, right? For generations. All of these are pretty essential to the strong towns idea. I would love to know if y'all could tell, um, if y'all could tell us a little bit about, I, I like to ask this of everyone, um, kind of how you became 
the type of people who like Amy, what you're saying, you can't drive around or walk around your city without seeing the potential, without thinking about, man, let's plant trees there. Let's get rid of, let's put a business there. We should put that, you know, how did y'all become like city aware? Like how does become part of your lifestyle to be so involved, so invested? Like, um, I think that's really extraordinary. And I know there are lots of people out there like that. Um, and then if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about how y'all came to know about strong towns and like how that, how that helped you hopefully get a sense of like a framework of like how to talk about some of these things you were noticing. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I mean the, the on the civic side, I, I really got a taste of it in college. I, I was part of student government in college and really enjoyed that kind of peek into um, like taking, taking the lead on how to make things better. I mean, I think one of my, one of the campaigns for one of the presidents I helped get elected, our, our campaign slogan was make it happen. And I just want a make it happen. I just, I, it's like baked into my bones. Like I just want to make things happen. Um, and, but really like the, the noticing part, the, the becoming city aware, I think was, is, was part of your question really for me, I don't know if Cody will agree, but it really starts within the four walls of the restaurant, you know, um, going back to that hospitality aspect, like watching how people interact with your space, really watching, you know, um, do people feel comfortable walking up your sidewalk, you know, is there a handicap ramp? Um, you know, is the step too high? Um, is there a drop of water on the floor? Could someone possibly slip? Oh, we need to get the caution wet sign. Um, you know, does someone have something in their hand and they can't open the door? Let me open the door for them. Or do they have several children following them near, you know, behind them? Like, are they out of the way of the driveway? Can I help them get inside faster? Um, you know, and then how do we rearrange furniture in a way that's comfortable or, um, you know, making sure that it's obvious to someone walking in your place where to line up to place their order and where to wait for their to-go order. Um, noticing those things just translates so easily over to how people interact outside in your city, you know? Mm -hmm. Where are the crosswalks? Are, are there stop signs at every intersection in a, in a walkable area? Um, you know, can I see if a car is coming, if I'm trying to cross the street or are there, are the parking spots not marked um, and cars are kind of parked wonky? Um, do, do cars coming into your neighborhood know that they can park on the street? Is there signage telling them that's free street parking? Um, these are the things that I notice and that I can't not see. And it, it's such a fine line, but I feel like in the city design world uh, um, between getting excited about design ideas as design ideas, like, you know, can getting people can just get amped about raised crosswalks because I need oh, yeah. to raise crosswalks, you know, or and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a very subtle but super critical and important difference between getting amped about design ideas because of how they improve people's lives. And how, you know, like sometimes I'll drive around my city and I'll see people having to make really dangerous decisions about how to get across a massive street. And it makes me so mad, not because of just the concept of an improved crosswalk, but because those people should not have to do that. Right. Exactly. Or children should not have to walk on a street with no sidewalk. That's the rage. It's just the lack of maybe maybe my experience experience in hospitality industry has shaped me more than I knew yeah. everything you're saying. I'm like, man, this reminds me of working in restaurants and I would like run around like crazy, just obsessed with people having everything they needed. And, um, 
you know, trying to trying to think ahead, two steps ahead of them, right? And try to notice Maybe things. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just really resonate with this sort of human centricness of it. If it's starting with the end user and really putting yourself in their shoes and empathizing and thinking about how do we make this experience for them as dignified and comfortable as possible. Um, but yeah, there's just a line there between getting amped about design features and really really thinking about it in terms of the people, because not every design feature is going to work in every city, but if you can always think about what can make things better for the people in your city, right? Totally. That's where you ha- having, having context. I mean, it's great to know all the tools and the toolkit theoretically, but when you start to make the object, the point of it all, you're, you're you are missing the point, mm-hmm. right? So like the bridge is so that people can cross the bridge, right? right. So um, the bridge can be beautiful. But if nobody crosses it, it's kind of like if a tree falls in the woods. And we see this all the time, right? You see this all the time with massive amounts of money going into cool features that then no one uses. And you have to ask yourself, how do we get there? Or the the study, you know? Oh, Oh, don't get me started on the study. Well, before we paint that parking spot, we need to do a study. (laughs) Like, no, just get some paint. Like, you know, I, it's, yeah. It does, it does kind of all tie back into that that core theme but i think the the more and more towns are going to realize this over time you know people and capital and jobs have never been more mobile than they are now um so towns are competing for residents now some towns have known this for a long time and they've been taking steps to become a place people want to go live mm-hmm. um so if you're city hall it really makes sense to start thinking of yourself as like a, a company kind of, mm-hmm. um, but a company with the longest possible time horizon, right? Infinity time horizon, not quarterly earnings report time horizon. <laughs> um, and your residents are your customers, mm-hmm. right? And your visitors are your customers. Um, so you have all these stakeholders, we might call them, right? So people who do business, who shop in your town, who live in your town, Um and if you're a business, you have to have a pretty sound value proposition as to why people should come to your town and then why should they stay? Um, and this, a, a lot of reasoning around what should we care about? What should we invest in? The, the list is infinite. There's so many things you could do theoretically. So to, to begin to ground oneself or one's community in some kind of core principle that's why we love the hospitality angle so much, because it's, it, it really feels like it's a strong foundation to start with, um, because there's no reason why you should be differentiating between a tourist um, and a teacher that lives down the street. Right. You should be building things that are um, attractive, mean, attractive, meaning a magnetic for people. So, and and that goes much further than just transactions and consuming things, which I think is the other piece to this puzzle that cities need to keep in mind. It's not just about having lots of opportunities for people to spend money, right? And this is at the heart of really thinking about like, what do people need? What do people need to feel like they really are at home in a place for a minute? And it's not just buying things, you know, because I feel like this is the mistake cities make in the other direction where it's like, okay, we'll provide lots of places for them to buy stuff. And I'm like, some of my happiest moments were when I was dirt poor and sitting in a plaza in Europe, you know, mm-hmm. with some cheap street food, but I could people watch. It was beautiful. There was a fountain or just being a poor New Yorker and just, I could go for the longest walk and it was magical, right? None of those things involved spending money. So I think it's a, it requires going a little bit further and really wrestling with like, 
the complexity of what humans need to feel, I don't know if the right phrase is feel at home, but just um, feel really welcome in a place, right? And and sometimes I feel like we cities, good intention, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to solve that puzzle. But sometimes I'm like, it's not just about the transaction. It's not just about the consumption, right? It's a, there's more to it than that. I think it ties a little bit into what Amy was saying about placemaking too, because placemaking kind of gets to that. It's like creating a place where people can just be <laughs> not always yeah, spend. And, just and if, be. It, it's like the, um, the, the, the consumables are an amenity, not the focus, right? You know? Not the point. It, yeah. It's convenient that I can buy a cup of coffee, but man, the blockhouse backyard is just a really fun place to hang out. And if I want to buy something, I do, but I don't have to. I can just watch my kids play on the playground, and that's okay. Yeah. And what if we thought about our neighborhoods and our cities that way too? Yeah. You know, of like just a wonderful place to be. Cody, I'd love to hear a little bit on your end, kind of how you like. What were some of the experiences that helped you sort of start to think more about the the city, the built environment? Um, and uh, to to just yeah invest your time and energy into into thinking about making your city better. Yeah, so uh, I mean, part of it's going to be from um, I, my mind tends to think in terms of investments. It's, it's part of I've been that way since I've been a, a little kid. Um, so creating value and capturing some of that value and thinking about uh, efficiency and productivity and all these things it's not very exciting to most people. Um, but one one of my jobs at the Frederick household is that uh, I tend to do dishes uh, around bedtime. So that's kind of my dad time. I put my my um, my headphones in and I'll usually you know listen to podcasts or watch YouTube videos or whatever. Um, so I forget the exact thing that happened, but some kind of way my algorithm served up a Strong Towns video years ago. Um, and when I when I came across the principles that were conveyed in the video a bunch of stuff that wasn't connected in my head got connected, whether it was the investment world or the places I've been lucky enough to see through travel and kind of have been a bit jealous, like, why can't we have that? You know, um, it, it brought a lot of stuff together. And then I think it fused it in terms of thinking of it in terms of a town, which is like, in my mind, I was like, wait, there's company. And then like, what's the next bigger level? It's like town. Um, and for so many people, I think because of the way we get information, people think like work and then national news, like giant global stories. And we forget all the layers in between of like where a lot of life happens much, much closer to your house than you realize. Um, but our attention gets drawn to far away things that we can't do anything about except mm -hmm. be mad, sad, happy about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it struck me in some kind of weird way. And I forget you know, exactly well, how I, I, I told Amy about it, but I was kind of like, you should check this stuff out. I think there's something here. I think it synthesized for you. It connected the financial incentives with the human dignity mm -hmm. and how they're not mutually exclusive. They're actually dependent or could be dependent. On each other. Like what's good for the human is often good for the cities and strong towns does like that is their mission to show that um, in, a, in an easily digestible way. Yeah, I think in a, maybe a life philosophy side of things without getting too esoteric, like I, I really love the concept of long term things like mm -hmm. so much of life is short term and transactional um, and there's there are precious few things that are available to the average person these days that could be a long-term game if you will to play with another person who wants to play a long-term game 
Um, but a lot of a lot of the most meaningful parts of life come from long term relationships and uh, with all their warts and their ups and downs or whatever. It's like sticking through hard stuff for a long time does something really healthy to our insides. Um, so it helps <laughs> people feel like they're not alone in the world. You know, you've gone through some stuff with somebody. You mm-hmm. didn't just cut them out of your life because they made one mistake one time. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you were extended forgiveness because you made one mistake one time. And um, so the, the the philosophy of like the town and the strong town, um, it it really hit me in a cool spot because I was like, wait a second, this might be like the boss game. It's sort of like, you know, like everyone will nod in agreement and say they want to build community in my mind, that was vague, frankly, for a long time. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't I hadn't had somebody help me to put a fine point on what that could look like on the ground outside of, say, the four walls of whatever business I might happen to be a part of or things like that. Um, and then it, it took real estate and property for me and, and took it from something like a commodity to do an Excel spreadsheet about and made it realize, like, wait a second, this is just a thing that people use. Um, and economics is people making decisions and trading with each other. It's like, it's fundamentally all people. Um, so I, that that part, I think still, I'm like unpacking new ways of understanding it and trying to learn, trying to be as humble as possible through the process. But I'm increasingly convinced that it's, it is the bedrock. It's the solid ground to build ideas and projects and relationships on. So and I'm think, very grateful for having stumbled upon I mean, upon. how does your... Um... I think it's kind of an ancient concept too. I mean, it, it probably ties into all of the the reading and, and studying you did of, um, you know, the the origins of, of the city. Like, oh yeah, uh, I had a, I had a few. This is another episode, <laughs> but I had a few year long rabbit hole of, uh, of of ancient philosophy, and I was pretty sure I was a petty like poor man's philosopher for for a little while. Great. Um, so if everyone takes a break, it's going to be um this this will be our intermission. We'll come back. <laughs> right, right. We're not going to do that. Urban philosophy one hundred and one with Cody Frederick. Yeah. Now's so. the time to refill on popcorn. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So I just think you know it's kind of like there are some things that almost all people we value at a very deep level. You know, we're all unique in our own way, but also we're all the same in the same ways. Um, so I think it's, it serves all of us well to learn a bit more about that and not try to fool ourselves. that There's some trick or some shortcut, like the best things in life take hard work. They just do. Um, they're also free oftentimes, but um, like good things are hard and that's part of what makes them good part of what makes them meaningful is like sort of measure what I should work on based on, is it fun or not? Or is it easy or hard? These are the wrong metrics. Um, it's, it's more, is it worth working for? And is it the right thing to do? Yeah. And then you reason backward from that, I think is um, it's, it makes it easier to be what looks like courageous. Y'all, this has been such a fantastic conversation and I have no doubt we could just keep going um, and have a ball, but we will go ahead and wrap things up here. And I like to ask this question at the end of all of our guests, but if someone was visiting your city, what are, in addition to Blockhouse Coffee, obviously, what are some other small businesses or, or activities or pretty parks or wh- where should people go to to, um, to under to see the city, to see a slice of local life, um, to get a feel for, for Richmond? I got a couple. Okay. Okay. Can I do two? Yes. Phone a friend and call. Okay, cool. So number one, the Fort Bend Museum, which is a few blocks away from where we are right now. Um, 
give some pretty interesting insight into, at least if you're in Texas, Texas history and its and the, the significance of events that, took, that have taken place within this county over time. Um, capital campaign happened a couple of years back, so the museum recently um, uh, had an addition tacked onto it. It's a beautiful new building, and the staff there is rad. They're awesome. They definitely help to make the history part come, come alive, so it doesn't feel like you're just reading about old people that aren't around anymore. That'd be number one. From a food standpoint, I'm going to go ETJ, okay? okay? Okay. We have a place called, this is Texas, so barbecue's a thing, but Harlem Road Barbecue, okay? So this is a place, I'm going to see if I can get this right. We have a chef here who is Armenian, but was born in Switzerland and worked for Wolfgang Puck for quite a few years, um, opening locations of Wolfgang Puck's restaurants around the world. He, at some point, became a cowboy and moved to Texas. I don't know the full story. Um, he pulled, started smoking meat. He pulled a barbecue trailer on the side of a highway, Harlem Road, um, in a field. Like, I think his next door neighbor is a fireworks stand. So it's like a, the, you know, <laughs> central Texas location. Um, and he built a thousand square foot metal shed next to his trailer. So it looks like a dining room, but it's not a restaurant. It's actually a barbecue trailer tucked right next to a metal shed. And he has won multiple times like a top 50 in Texas barbecue uh, award. So easy to pass it up because it almost looks like it's a scrapyard when you're driving by it. Um, but inside that shed is some of the best barbecue you will ever eat in your life. I think you guys have officially like solidified my case to my husband why we should take a road trip now. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Cute coffee shop for me. Barbecue for you. Win Boom. win. There we go. <laughs> How about you? What would you pick? Um, well, I'm gonna stick to downtown Richmond because uh it's it's I eat, sleep, and breathe it, right? Um, there's an amazing little juice bar that opened up, I want to say right before we did. Um, it's called Trough Juice, and it is in the downtown area, and they were really a first mover. Um, you know, I, when they were opening, I was like, Man, juice bar in Richmond, who is gonna buy a nine dollar juice in Richmond, Texas? And they've kept it going. It has a cult following. People love it. Um, the family um, also opened a, a really cute women's boutique next door. So you can kind of shop and get your juice. Um, I really like that. And I just like walking. I like walking the streets down here. Um, a friend of ours, I mean, there's so many things like a friend of ours also has a, a wood shop workshop slash home goods store called Mercy Goods, where I'm actually uh, you can't see, but I'm I'm repping the the sweatshirt today from Mercy Goods. But um, Zach Lambert was one of the first friends we made when we got to Richmond. Yeah. Um, he's an Austin transplant. Yeah, so. so he we we connected over the transplant uh, uh, aspect of being new to the area, and we're just you know best of friends now. He has his shop uh, right across the street from Blockhouse, um, and then. It's not traditional because uh, you can't really like uh, go there to like buy something. But there's a school in the neighborhood called Shady Oak. And I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> um, but the woman who started that school um, has become a mentor of mine. And her name is Joyce Trigger. And she is the reason why... Um, I've been motivated to do the work that we're doing here in Richmond. Um, she is the original connector. She is the OG for real out here. Yeah. She is a wonderful giving woman 
who ran that small school for how many years? Uh, over 30 years. She yeah. founded it and um, it's still running today. They actually started uh, their school year yesterday. They always start the day after Labor Day. And um, my daughter went to one of the campuses for five years and uh, our son is there now. Um, but it's such an anchor in downtown Richmond. And she's been so instrumental in um, connecting me. And now I'm able to do some connecting uh, because of her influence. So um, you should have, you should have done video for this because you got to cry on camera. Like, I know I'm kind of regretting this. And plus yeah, the like the so great much. like vibe y'all have just like going off each other and you're, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, you typically wouldn't, wouldn't typically wouldn't bring up a school, but, um, but no, it's, if you ask anybody who's connected, uh, really connected to Richmond, they, they, they'll tell you, I mean, I run into people at the coffee shop all the time. Oh, I went to that school. Or, oh, my niece or nephew went to that school, or I sent my kids to that school. It, it's it's really um, special. And yeah. and it, it's really shaped uh, what, what's, what's happening here and what will happen, so. Cody and Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with me and with our listeners. Um, it's been a joy to hear about how thinking um, about hospitality when we look at our city might just help us make them slightly better places. Um, and just hearing so much about all of the heart and energy that you all are putting into the city that you call home to our listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode. Um, in the show notes, we will put the links to these uh, businesses that Amy and Cody recommend. Um, we'll be back in two weeks with another conversation. If there's someone in your community or your network who you think would make a great guest for the show, please nominate them in the suggested guest form uh, linked in the show notes. Until then, thank you. And I don't have a clever sign off yet. Abby has one for Upzone, but I don't have one yet. So I'm going to have to keep working on that. But until then, thanks for listening and we'll see y'all next time. Thanks, Tiffany. Very cool.